You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last nine years, we've been meeting here every single week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we had another brisk weekend of action in MMA over the weekend with PFL and Bellator and the UFC all in action. We saw Kayla Harrison go out there and get another gimme win. We saw Czech Congo choke out Sergei Haritanov with one second on the clock in the second round. And of course, Jared Cannonier got the decision victory in a competitive fight with Kelvin Gastelum in the UFC on Saturday night. Uh, you know what? Quantity doesn't always equal quality, obviously, but it does strike me as I consider a weekend like this one. We've talked a little bit in the past about a potential golden age for hardcore MMA fans. And this weekend, I was just thinking about it, that uh, there's there's more high-level MMA readily available just at our fingertips right now than at any time that I imagined as we were coming up in this sport. And, I mean, it feels different than I thought it would, but I kind of think you got to admit that weekends like this sort of make it feel like MMA has made it. Like it's just everywhere. It's just around if you want it. Does that does that strike you on a weekend like this, or are you just are you just basically trying to keep up? No, you're not wrong about that. Especially you know we've made the point before that the level of MMA now is much higher than it's ever been. Just the actual level of the competition in the cage, what people are capable of, even. You know, not only that the highs are way higher, but the baseline of just what any MMA doing motherfucker out there can do. Yeah. They're just way better. But you're right, though, that it used to be, okay, we had a high level, which still not as high as the, the point now, not not at this quite high watermark that we are seeing from a lot of these fighters at the top of the UFC. But then the drop off was basically dudes in basketball shorts. <laughs> And that was like level two, you know, that wasn't even like level 17 or anything. It was just kind of the next step down was strip club bouncers beating on each other in the parking lot of a Harley Davidson dealership. And yes, I am describing an actual event I've been to. Yeah. And now you're right. It does seem like you can hold enough events across three different organizations and you see good MMA in all of them. Yeah, I, that is you're, you're right that it doesn't feel exactly like I expected it to. And it's not didn't come with an, uh, necessarily an explosion in popularity. We were surpassed soccer and the entire world is hanging on a, the every new development in the MMA world. But damn it, we got to say that the, it, it grew, it, it blew up and it got out there. Yeah. And, you know, obviously sometimes we we bang on the UFC for the schedule and for having so many uh cards and oversaturation and the various twists and turns that the market has taken as the UFC has moved from Spike TV to Fox to ESPN and some of the ways that that has changed the business model in ways that uh that I certainly didn't foresee and I don't know that anybody foresaw them but you know you look at these three cards and for the most part 
anybody fighting on these PFL or Bellator or UFC cards is good enough to be in the UFC. Like any single one of them, especially by today's standards where the UFC has like 500 people under contract, but it's just like an amazing amount of elite level mixed martial arts, even if it is not presented in a way that I had anticipated, even if sometimes it feels like the UFC is out here putting on hashtag just some fights. The hashtag just some fights are at least at a higher level now. And there's more of them now than I think that I had anticipated. So just in terms of like health of the sport, I feel like a lot of the stuff that the UFC does is is not good. It's good for the health of the UFC, but it's not good for the overall health of the sport. But I mean, like weekends like this make me feel like the sport is actually pretty healthy, that there's just a lot of people out there doing it at a real high level. True. And yet I do also wonder if we're going to eventually see some kind of holdover effect from the pandemic being a lot harder on some of those small organizations than on the bigger ones that just the ones that relied on live events, live ticket sales and sponsorships because they didn't have broadcast deals and, you know, doing events in an empty arena didn't work for them. I wonder if we will see, you know, nine months, a year and a half down the road that we just, we're looking around and feeling the effects of some of those people not being around anymore. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. It's going to be interesting to, to see how all this stuff shapes and changes and evolves and morphs as we move forward. Remember you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. This show drops every Monday afternoon for free in your timelines or podcast libraries. But if you think we're having fun right now, you got to go over and check out what's going on over at patreon.com slash co-main event because Ben Folks and I are there all week with three additional podcasts every single week. If you don't get your MMA fix from the proper, you can check out the Wednesday live chat. You can check out the Thursday movie club and you can check out the Friday power hour, an additional hour of curated MMA talk every single week, which features the dreaded but amazingly named co-main event podcast, Patreon power hour, power rankings, patreon.com slash co-main event and go there and check it out. Of course, we got music this week uh, from our guy, Kyle Kelly Yonner, old school CME listener, also happens to be a drummer. He's got a solo project out. You can check out the EP of instrumental tracks at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him at kylekydrums on Instagram if you like what you hear from him on the show today. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Jared Cannonier defeats Kelvin Gastelum and immediately announces the world that he is broke. Is that a good look? That's a bad look, right? What's really going on? And in round number two, there's always a lot of talk about what Kayla Harrison needs to do next But does the PFL's biggest star actually have this whole game all figured out? And in round number three, Sunday, 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 it's Jake Paul versus Tyron Woodley. Don't judge us. Don't act like that's not exactly what you want to sit there and listen to us talk about during round three. You know it is. You know it is. You know it. All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Now, Chad, before we get into that, I noticed you, when you mentioned the CME Power rankings on the CME Power Hour, both of them amazingly named, you did not mention that we saw the return of $20 whenever we want to see again. Yeah, we did. This past week. And uh, mostly to negative consequences. You know what? It's that damn Parker Porter. He went out there 
and he ruined my parlay. I had it all working. I still, though, I got uh, I got Jared Cannonier via decision. So well, there you go. Yeah. Well, we got a question coming up in listener mail about some of the okay. uh, some of the ways your system fared this weekend. But too early. It's too early to judge it. I'll just say that right now. Okay. Give it time. All right. We're going to start here though with this message from Darkwing Duck, who writes. So, good luck on the pronunciation, buds, but Ignacio Bahamondes goes out there and spin kicks Roosevelt Roberts right in his damn face, and the internets lost their mind. Is this even more evidence that the UFC is right, that hashtag just some fights is actually good enough? Do we now just immediately forget about Ignacio Bahamondes? Made me say it twice. Thank you very much. And roll into next week's hashtag just some fights. Is this punishment for Roosevelt Roberts having two last names? <laughs> Please discourse. These were, you know, all of the, uh, well, many of the prelims of um, UFC uh, on ESPN 29 on Saturday night were, were kind of crazy. They had crazy finishes. The most crazy of all, of course, this spinning wheel kick KO um, down the stretch of the third round, in fact, like just as we thought we were cruising to the end of this fight, Ignacio Bahamandes knocks out Roosevelt Roberts with a knockout of the year candidate. And of course, it goes viral. It's all over the place. All of the major uh, sports, mainstream sports websites tweeted about it. I saw ESPN still has it on the front page today. Is this vindication, Ben, for the UFC's current business model? where they're just going to throw a bunch of fights out there every single week, many of them featuring people that you probably don't know, and they're just going to say, you know what, for most people, this is good enough, and every once in a while, somebody like Ignacio Bahamandez is going to spin kick somebody like Roosevelt Roberts in the face, and we're going to get a bunch of fucking viral publicity about it. Is that is this vindication? I mean, in a way, it's vindication for that strategy, but the strategy was already working to... to- to do what it's designed to do, right? Like to churn out MMA content, to make that guaranteed money from ESPN. All that stuff is happening whether you have awesome spinning heel kick knockouts or not. And, you know, you can play the odds on that and you can be fairly confident that sooner or later you're going to get one of these. You know, for every 40 fights you put on, maybe you get one killer highlight finish that goes briefly viral and people get excited about it. But I do think it is a fair question brought on here by Darkwing Duck. I appreciate hearing from him. That is this, does this really do anything going forward? Does this, do we see Ignacio Bahamandez again in like four months and we go, who? And then you show us the highlight and we go, oh, okay, yeah, I remember that. It's been a heel kick guy. And, you know, just because we've been through this before. Not that long ago, even, where somebody gets a a great highlight reel finish, and then if they can't follow it up with something else after that, then pretty soon we we don't really remember it that much anymore. Yeah. And, but I mean, that's from the UFC's perspective, that's probably fine. That's, you're just going like, okay, we're, we're fulfilling our content goals, hitting our, our broadcast partners' marks that we need to hit. And then, you know, every once in a while you get a good one and you do whatever you can with it. And if it doesn't lead to life-changing success for the guy who actually pulls off the crazy finish, so what? That's not really what we're looking for anyway. And, you know, the other thing about stuff like this is, you know, I saw him land that kick and that happened at around like, what, 5.30, 6 o'clock on Saturday 
evening, afternoon here in the one true time zone. Yeah. And so it's like a lot of people, the, the people who are watching them are the people who are going to watch just some fights. You know, it doesn't matter if you have uh, names they recognize. It doesn't matter. You know, they know that you can't guarantee them highlight real finishes. They know that that part is kind of a crapshoot. The people who are watching that early on in the prelims, you know, it's like the second fight into the night. They are just they're going to watch whatever you put on. And so you're you're sort of preaching to the choir there at that point. Like those people are not the ones that you're you're trying to to convert. You're hoping, I guess, that that knockout gets shared far and wide enough that some people go, all right, let me let me figure out an ESPN plus subscription. Let me figure out how to how to watch this stuff because it does look like they're doing awesome shit over there. Like that's I guess what you're hoping for. Or you're just hoping for just general brand awareness, which has been the UFC's goal for a long time. But I mean you read that this card is one where you started out first four fights all get finished yeah. in some pretty spectacular fashions. Yeah. And then you only get two finishes for the the main card. And so it is a vindication in a way that you can put some people on there who we may have never heard of and they could still give you a show. Yeah. Uh, and the UFC obviously does know that. It was less than a year ago that Joaquin Buckley went out there and landed that spinning back kick KO on Impa Kasangane October 11th, 2020 over there in Abu Dhabi, made him the flavor of the month. He followed that up with another KO uh, in his next fight, one back-to-back performance of the night awards. Then he comes out. He got knocked out in the first round by Alessio uh, Di Chiquirio in uh, January of this year. And we have basically not heard of Joaquin Bunkley, Buckley since then. So it's a uh, it's a slippery slope, I think, if you are Ignacio Bahamandes, who did, in fact, get the $50,000 extra performance of the night bonus for this knockout. But... Uh, you know, these highlights are fleeting, man. If you are the the actual fighter who does it for the UFC, it's probably a pretty good deal. Uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out for, for Ignacio here. Um, next question this week comes to us from DB Donnie, who writes, Do you guys think Josiana Nunez heard, ben, heard about Ben's new betting system, theorizing that most women's fights go the distance on the power hour on Friday and was like, hold my beer, motherfuckers. Uh so, of course, Nunez, she goes out there. She knocks out the much taller B. Malecki. First round, overhand, I believe right hand, KO, knockout in the first round. Uh, this this had to be a tough one for you, Ben, since you were you were planning on this one going the full 15. Didn't even make it five. Listen, when you embark on a new system, you don't just go on what happens the very first time out. It's like you ever... You ever see Moneyball, Chad? Maybe read the book? Yeah, I'm familiar with Moneyball. Yeah. You know what? uh, At least in the book, I don't know if they include this part in the movie, but they get into the playoffs and uh, the writer asks Billy Bean at one point, hey, are you really nervous about the playoffs? And he just kind of shrugs and says, no, my shit doesn't work in the playoffs. Because basically his system only works with a big enough sample size. That's how I feel about my system. It's going to be proven out over hundreds of fights and i don't know why people can't see that it's because they you know what i i I do get it I, i suppose when you're a visionary as i am with this system you get used to not everybody being able to see the vision that you have but guess what when we're 400 fights into this system and i'm sitting there with a cool 16 dollars and 80 cents in winnings we'll see who's talking then you know so what you're saying is check back in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
I think by 2023, we should have some good data to talk about. Where are we at, pro or, or con, on the nickname of B. Malecki, the, uh, the bad news Barbie? I mean, are you suggesting that there is any reason at all not to love everything about it? <laughs> I, I just, you know, it's good shades of bad news brown. Okay, I, I, I love that. Yeah, I'm not I'm not saying it's bad. It's just B. Malecki is one of these uh, fighters that, how am I going to put this? She seems very comfortable marketing herself. Let's just say it that way. Uh, she's got a thing that she does. I thought it was also pretty sporting of her to jump on Instagram in the immediate wake of this knockout while she's still at the hospital to essentially be like, well, that's not how I saw it going. And that's, <laughs> that was my first knockout loss, hopefully my last uh, my basically my head hurts, my elbow hurts. I'm at the hospital to get checked out, but I'm okay and I'll be back. Was basically the message, and uh, pretty sporting. I thought of B Malecki to do that, and this this uh, this has to be a rough one for her. She's been in the UFC for three of her five professional MMA fights, so that's that's a quick a quick move up for her. Yeah, and she was looking good early in this fight, so it's not like she went out there and just got absolutely trucked, but, uh, you know, she was looking good right up until she wasn't. You, I mean, your system, you bet on her because she has the same first name as your daughter. Yeah, that also did not work out. But you know what? Mm -hmm. Small sample size. Check back with me in a couple of years. (laughs) We just need a bunch more Bs to get in there as professional cage fighters. Exactly right. Next question this week comes to us from Dan Alexander. This one is about Kelvin Gastelum, who I assume we will be talking about in... Uh, round number one, when we talk about his fight with Jared Cannonier, but this Dan Alexander writes, I know that he fought the champ and pushed him all the way, but with his skills slowly diminishing, is Kelvin Gastelum now just too small for middleweight? Please discourse. Uh, I don't, did you think that this fight made it look like Kelvin Gastelum's skills were diminishing? Like, I thought that I he looked pretty skilled in this fight. Like this, Like I said, this competitive middleweight main event here, and Kelvin Gastelum, this was one of those fights... Where in spurts, I thought Kelvin Gastelum looked like he was the better fighter. And then yeah. Jared Cannonier would come land a much harder shot. In the second round, obviously, he drops Kelvin Gastelum. That kind of set the blueprint for how the rest of this thing was going to go. Jared Cannonier ultimately uh, gets the victory, the unanimous decision victory here. I don't know that I thought that uh, that it looked like Kelvin Gastelum's skills were eroding. But I did think like this was one where maybe the size difference was was uh, meaningful in this fight because you saw instances here where like Kelvin Gastelum would try to he would get in trouble he would he would kind of battle his way back as a as a guy that we all know is super durable and then he would try to like shoot a takedown or he would grab a clinch he would do something to try to kind of turn the tide back in his direction and he just couldn't really get it and I think it was because Jared Cannonier was just too big and too strong for him so in that regard. Ah, Kelvin Gastelum to me does seem like one of these unfortunate dudes that is like maybe a little bit big for welterweight and maybe a little bit small for middleweight, the classic tweener here. And I don't know, man, once it's all said and done, I wouldn't be surprised if that is going to end up kind of being the story of who Kelvin Gastelum was as a professional fighter. Yeah, I'm. there were moments where you could see that maybe the size difference was hurting, especially he was so committed at times to getting a takedown and that sometimes could really get in there, get where he wanted to be and couldn't quite finish it. And you could, you could make a claim, a compelling claim that if that were somebody closer to his size, that he could get it. And yet we saw what happened when he tried to be a welterweight 
He struggled with that. That typically doesn't get easier as you get older for most people. And so unless we get that 165 division, which then pumps welterweight up to 175, then, and, you know, that would be perfect for Kelvin Gastelum probably. But it also doesn't seem like it's going to happen. And I I don't look at this fight as saying like, okay, this guy clearly can't do it at this level anymore. Is he, you, I can see somebody making an argument that he deserved to win the decision yeah. in this fight. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think Gennanier deserved to win it, but not by a lot. You know, I mean, he's still, he's clearly tough as all hell. He can get absolutely leveled with a punch and bounce right back up. So it's not like he can't handle the power of some of those guys at middleweight. I, maybe some of it is that he just hasn't adapted his game plan enough for that size difference that he faces at middleweight and, and figured out ways to negate that. I, I don't know, but, but I'm not going to come away from a fight like this being like, well, clearly Kelvin Gastelum cannot hack it. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Cameron Chapman, who writes, spare a moment for some reflection on the career and influence of the poet Philip Baroni and today's retirement announcement. I'd say Philip Baroni, we hardly knew he, but he fought uh, for everyone and he flashed his D on the Internet so much. <laughs> it probably has its own Wikipedia page. Yeah, yeah, we knew ye. Yeah. We knew ye, Phil. <laughs> we knew ye, perhaps more intimately than we wanted. Uh, the 45-year-old Philip Baroni, obviously a guy who is near and dear to the hearts of the co-main event podcast, calls it quits this week amid a stretch where he is 3-9, and nine, dating back to June the 6th, 2009 in uh, mixed martial arts. Of course, he has dabbled in bare-knuckle fighting. He has dabbled in... Uh, professional wrestling. How are you going to remember the poet? I mean, let's we'll, we'll put a caveat on all of this, and that is that we know how these MMA retirements go. But uh, how will you remember the poet Philip Baroni if this is indeed the last we see of him in a competitive fighting arena? Yeah, I mean, you're right that we know how these go. Something about though the wording of this reading from uh, his Twitter on just a couple of days ago on August 21st. I'm retired. My career has come to a close. Thanks to my fans for the support. It was fun. Thanks for the memories. It should have been over a long time ago. Adios, amigos from Mexico. Uh, the it should have been over a long time ago. That's the part where you get me to believe that maybe this is really it. Yeah. Unless somebody comes back out of nowhere with a big money offer or something, but I don't know if I necessarily see that happening. I mean, I'll, I'll make this argument. Baroni's going to be one of those guys that's easier to appreciate what he the, the, the positives that he brought the further we get away from him actually being an active fighter. Yeah. No. Because I think some of the last few years there were some bummers in there. There were some, some hard to watch nights in there, but I think five years on people might remember the other Phil Baroni, you know, the old, just looking absolutely shredded in the UFC, New York, badass Phil Baroni throwing them bungalows and then walking around like a damn Jersey shore stereotype, like, like an extra for much of the rest of his moments in the public eye and but in the way that we enjoyed that we loved having him around that he was fun to have around yeah fought in the ufc fought in pride strike force cage rage dream elite xc bellator and one fc if you weren't around when phil baroni first hit the the mainstream you know back in in 2001 or 2002 when he first came into the ufc and and even back then he didn't put up 
the prettiest of numbers in terms of wins and losses. But he was like one of these, you know, one of these early guys to come into a sport, which at the time was still very much in its infancy and very much, you know, based around respect and uh, like mutual admiration. And he's he's coming out with the, the robe on and the sunglasses. And at times there might have been dancing girls and he's doing the uh, the uh, like kind of pro wrestling presentation a lot sooner than a lot of the other guys who eventually came around to the promotional side of things. And he was out there, like you said, looking super shredded and being very dangerous and his knockouts of people like Dave Manet uh, in the UFC are, are, are stuff that I b- remember about him. And, and like, if you weren't around at the time, maybe you don't appreciate, uh, Phil Baroni, but like in those, in those early days, man, he was a guy, he was a capital G guy. It just didn't, you know, play out over the course of his career as successfully as I think maybe it looked like it might early on, but, uh, but he was a guy who made an impact. And like, that's, that's, I think how I will remember him. Of course, I will also remember things got kind of ridiculous down the stretch, but that's you know how it goes in combat sports a lot of the times. Yeah, I will remember from his days in Pride one of my favorite pre-fight promos of all time. When you know how they do it in Pride, where it had like the guys sitting there for like black and white interviews and kind of going back and forth, and it was his rematch with Minimal Man, and he had. I believe head stomped Minimal Man <laughs> the first fight because because of pride, and then afterwards you had Minimal Man sitting there, and in the the translation you can hear him saying that you know he learned a lot from that first fight and it won't happen again, and then they cut to Baroni sitting there saying, "What the fuck could he have learned? What could he have possibly learned from that? Fucking don't forget your shine box," <laughs> and I just went okay, you know what. Like, the sincerity with which he delivered that line, like, he was actually genuinely curious to know what you, what kind of lesson you could have taken from that. And I went, this guy, this fucking guy, that's, that's the guy I'll miss. That's the guy I'll remember. Next question this week comes to us from Jonathan Roghair on uh, Patreon. He writes, is it to the UFC's advantage for us to watch the entire broadcast? Because it doesn't seem like they keep in mind the viewer who's cramming individual fights while doing the dishes or sitting on the toilet. I was watching piecemeal tonight and they mentioned a few things that served as spoilers about the earlier fights or trends in the fights as a whole. Hard to remember uh, which were that and which were my clumsy fast forwarding fingers spoiling things. Plus my and everyone's ability to see whether a fight got finished by the posted length of the fight video. I believe he means on ESPN plus obviously. Uh, but mm-hmm. do you think they might start catering more to us? Find a minute chess.com style viewers, or do they really want slash expect us to sit through the many, many hours of content and commercials like we did in the good old days. Thanks. Uh, I mean, for starters, I don't think that you can expect the actual guys on the UFC broadcast to uh, keep in mind that not everyone is watching the entire event. When As John yeah. Anik and Paul Felder and Daniel Cormier are sitting there commentating this thing, from five o'clock in the afternoon to midnight, essentially here in the one true time zone. Like, I don't think that you can, I don't think that's asking too much, especially since you're dealing with a live sports broadcast here. And like, I think you could make the case. There's no such thing as spoilers in a live sports broadcast that if you're not watching it live, it's kind of on you that you kind of have the responsibility. If you want to avoid spoilers to try to avoid spoilers. That said, 
I think most people are watching the UFC exactly the way Jonathan describes here. I think that the people who sit and watch every fight through the entire broadcast are in the minority at this point. Uh, As I've said before, the UFC does not deserve the loyalty engendered to keep those people coming back for more to watch the entire broadcast week in and week out. And the MMA is kind of like, and the UFC specifically, it's kind of like the only remaining mainstream sport where there would be an expectation that you would watch everything that doesn't exist in other sports like not even in like the nfl do they think you're going to sit down and watch every football game you might catch the highlights but very very few people even people who get paid to cover the damn league aren't sitting there watching every single football game every single week so it's clearly to the ufc's advantage to keep that expectation as a like unwritten uh, moray of the MMA subculture, right? That there's like, oh, you're a fucking casual if you don't watch every fight. Like that's to the UFC's advantage. But I think above and beyond all else, they don't really care, man. They don't really care if you watch the whole thing or if you sit there and, and you pick through this and that and what you want to watch. Because again, in this day and age, they're getting paid the same regardless. So I think that yeah. it's just sort of like, uh, they will take whatever they can get as long as the money is right. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you that it's too much to ask in a couple different directions. Too much to ask of the broadcasters to try to keep in mind that some people are going to be enjoying these piecemeal and that you don't want to give stuff away because who, who knows at what point you're joining this already in progress broadcast. But it's also too much to ask that regular people are going to be able to squeeze in a full six to eight hour broadcast live like watching it as it happens with all the filler that that includes basically every single saturday night yeah that's just that's unreasonable like people are just not going to be able to do that so i I agree that they're probably for the most part the, the ufc from their perspective is not really thinking about it at all they're thinking about we're serving it up for espn we're making our money there if espn starts to care about how many people are watching and gets concerned about that then maybe we'll care but Right now, you know what, like if you go back and you watch these events, you watch three, four fights from it with using your ESPN plus subscription, man, that means you have an ESPN plus subscription and that means you are counted as a win in the column there. Right. And that's the thing that ESPN cares about. They don't actually care if everyone is watching every single fight. What they care about is if you keep paying every month to keep your ESPN plus subscription because you want to watch some UFC. So yeah, as long as you it's like the gym doesn't really care if you show up as long as you keep that membership active. Exactly. Exactly. The one thing here, like I admit, it's kind of a bummer if you go back and you watch these individual fights that they they clip out and post on ESPN plus, which for starters, I think is a great service. If somebody yeah. wants to go just watch one fight, I'm glad that they're doing that. They're pulling them out and they're making them individual videos. It is Showtime app needs to do that with a Bellator shit. I'm just saying it is a little bit of a bummer sometimes if you queue one up and the video itself is only like 10 minutes long. Because then you're like, well, I guess this one doesn't go the distance because there's literally not enough time on the video to do this. Or if you see like the main event video of uh, Jared Cannonier versus Kelvin Gastelum, I'm looking at it right now. It's 36 minutes long. Yeah. So you kind of know what is up there. Yeah. You see, see that and you think, OK, this thing must go the distance. However, you you can just watch the uh, the entire event replay. 
Like that, they post a video. Yeah. It's usually like about three hours long. It's the main card. And from there, you can kind of jump around. It's a little bit clunky to do it on ESPN Plus, but you can jump around and find the fights and watch them. Uh, if the video lengths of the clipped out fights is kind of spoiling it for you, you can do it that way too. Yeah. And I've seen people complain about this before when it was on Fight Pass and everything. And I mean, speaking of asking too much, I, I don't know that there's a practical like workable solution for that problem while while still delivering on the convenience of chopping up the an individual fights and yeah. serving them up so you can watch them one at a time because otherwise it's just what are they supposed to make them all like 40 minutes long and put a bunch of just like blank screen a bunch of, or is it just supposed to be like you know 27 minutes of ads after a, a second round knockout i mean i i don't know it's, it's hard for me to imagine that that's a, a real thing that we can expect flock of seagulls album Okay. It's, it's if there's a first round knockout, you just get an entire album rock listen through of a of a flock of seagulls album. That's what always you flock of seagulls, huh? Every single time. I mean, we don't want to pay for the to the rights to a bunch of different records, man. Just get the, just get okay. the one and just put it on. You know what? Here I said the problem was unsolvable, and then you just went and solved it. <laughs> that is going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment, or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks. You know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Jared Cannonier goes out there and grabs a much-needed middleweight contender win in the main event of this UFC on ESPN event. Gets off the schneid after losing to Robert Whitaker back in October at UFC 254 with a pretty good performance in his unanimous decision victory over Kelvin Gastelum. We talked at the beginning of the show about how it was a close fight, it was a competitive fight. I also thought it was a fun fight to watch. These guys kept a high pace throughout most of it, and they were swinging them things, man. Like, these guys were both out there throwing hard, trying to knock each other out, doing everything that I think we ask of MMA fighters to do in these fights. Jared Cannonier comes out on top. In the post-fight interview with Daniel Cormier, near the end of the interview, Cormier asks him if he wants to wait to see how things shake out in the in the middleweight title picture, see if he can obtain number one contender status. Jared Cannonier's response, well, I'm broke, so I got to keep fighting, is what he said. He went on uh, the MMA Hour with Ariel Hawani today to kind of expand on those uh, comments. Basically said some of the same stuff that Misha Tate said last week, talking about how her fight purse got all burned up before she had even got a chance to put it in the bank. What with taxes and training costs and travel and gyms and stuff like that. Cannonier kind of saying the same thing. Again, we're just beating the same drum, ringing the same bell a lot over and over in this sport. And that drum is the fighters just aren't getting paid very much. So when something like this happens, Jared Cannonier, the main event winner of this UFC event, gets on the mic and says, I'm broke, man. What's your response? Do you have any emotional response at this point? Or is it just kind of more of the same that we've been talking about for years in this sport? Yeah, I mean, 
it's weird to be a media member with this topic because every time we talk about it, it seems we're reminded that there are a whole lot of people who watch the sport who just absolutely do not give a shit and never want to hear about fighter pay, either from fighters or from media people. They just want to see the fights, which I don't know. In a way, maybe I get it that if this is just a fun entertainment thing for you and you want to keep it that way and you don't want to think too hard about the people being exploited in order to, to, you know, serve you up the happy meal at the end of the day. And yet, I also think that when I hear people like Misha Tate and like Jared Kennedy are trying to make this point about, look, you might see what I make or see what the the payouts look like, but you don't understand how much of the costs of this a pro fighter is expected to shoulder on their own. And yet, also, like the, the kind of built-in difficult to plan for contingencies in the life of a fighter where especially for Jared Cannonier, where you know if you look at his situation where you know he is a guy where we've been saying for a while he's one of the top middleweights one of the top three middleweights in the world and yet you know one of the reasons that he I think he himself would say that he's broke is because he's just fought like once a year basically you know he he his, he fought Bobby Knuckles last October lost and so didn't get the win portion of his his bonus then he's out almost a full year before he comes back for this one and yet like that's a kind of thing that while it's difficult to plan for for a fighter it's also hard to remove that aspect of their lives just because of the way the sport works you can easily go in there and get injured in a fight and not be able to to fight again you can also just get injured in the gym at any point and you're kind of on your own then or you can have some kind of combination of not being able to seize a opportunity because you just fought or because you're injured. And also when you're one of the top guys in the world, there are fewer potential fights for you. When you're Jared Cannonier, there are fewer fights that make sense for you. It's not like if you're, you know, the number 15 featherweight in the world and they could offer you anybody who is like, you know, not quite broken into the rankings to like the the next five guys above you. And all those fights would make sense for you. Those are all reasonable opponents for you to take. And so it makes it easier for you to stay active. It's harder for somebody like this. And yet at the same time, if the, if the guy is one of the top middleweights in the world, you would think that it shouldn't be that big of a problem for him, that you would think that he would be getting paid enough, especially if he's going to end up in a main event on ESPN, you'd think that he should be getting paid enough per fight that he doesn't have to worry about, you know, going broke if he goes a year between fights. Yeah. And Jared Cannonier is 37 years old. So he's probably sitting here, you know, one way or another, either, either consciously or subconsciously staring down the end of his MMA career sometime during the next, you know, 10 years, I would think. Uh, and you got to start thinking like, when am I going to make the money? Where's the money going to come from, if if at all or if ever? Uh, so, you know, I could see that being a concern for him as well. Uh, one of the things that doesn't get brought up all that often when people bring up their uh, their criticisms or their reasons why they don't think MMA fighters should get paid more that I just want to continually keep reminding people is that it's not like the money is not there, man. The money is already there to pay these guys a lot more. Their labor is already creating hundreds of millions of dollars every year in revenue for the UFC. The money exists. The money is being generated right now on the backs of the fighters. They are the product. 
And the, the thing that's happening is that the company is just keeping it all. They're not giving any to the fighters. So, you know, people who, who talk about how the fighters don't deserve to make any more money or how, you know, we see the old refrain that MMA fighting is an opportunity or it's a dream. It's not necessarily a career. Like those are lies. Remember that those are lies when people say it, because the money is there to pay these guys at least three, sometimes four times as much as they're getting paid now uh, across the board. And it continues to be criminal that we're just kind of not really doing that. So I guess to circle back here to Jared Cannonier, I think one of the things he's got going for him, Ben, is that uh, he hasn't fought Israel Adesanya yet. And that's certainly not true of a lot of these different top contenders. I think that they make for an interesting fight, just skill set wise, just seeing Cannoneer out there looking very powerful. Uh, he's an athletic guy. He hits hard. I think he's a smart fighter. He's got a lot of different uh, skills out there, like a, a diverse skill set. I don't know that I say he beats Israel Adesanya or that I would bet on him in a fight against Israel Adesanya. But as we sit here today, I think I'd watch that fight. I think that's an interesting matchup. Yeah, and you're right that just the sheer novelty of it is something he's got on his side. Israel Adesanya is like the idea. You know, if he could have beat Robert Whitaker, he would have probably got that fight. But it is interesting how it can just be all the 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 things you need on your in your favor is just that you haven't had a chance yet. Like that <laughs> says something about Israel Adesanya's dominance so far as middleweight champion. Just that like, all right, are you somebody who is hanging around the top five and has not yet had your ass beat by Izzy Adesanya? Well, then, all right, it's your turn. And you know what, though? I mean, and that's another thing, though, to circle back to the question about does Kellen Gaslam is his skills deteriorating, can't do it at middleweight. If we're going to say that Jared Cannonier sort of eking out a close decision over Kelvin Gaslam proves yet again that he is one of the best middleweights in the world, then it can't simultaneously prove that Kelvin Gaslam sucks. Yeah. Because if he does, then beating him would not mean that. And I think it does mean that. I mean, he's a tough dude to go in there and get that win over him, even if it's a fairly close decision. You know, it, that does still mean something, and it does still mean that Jared Cannonier is right up there with the top guys at 185 pounds, but it also means that Kelvin Gaslam is not that far away. Yeah, and again, a tough run for Gaslam, man. When I see him out there fighting, he looks good to me, man. He's doing all the stuff that I think you want him to do, that you could ask him to do. He's just not winning for one reason or another. One and five now in his last six against some very, very high-level competition. Israel Adesanya, Darren Till, Jack Hermanson, Robert Whitaker, and now Jared Cannonier. But, like, it's kind of... I can see if he is frustrated or or if his coaches are frustrated because when I watch it, he looks to me like he's doing all the things you want him to do. He's just coming up short to all these fights. I don't even know what to say about it, really. I think for him, consistency is one of the issues because you're right that in moments, you know, for, for, for whole sections of a round, he can look pretty good. Yeah. But putting it all together over the course of a fight and, and just from one fight to the next, that seems like the tough part for Kelvin Gaston. And, but also like we talked about a little bit on the power hour on Friday, you look at that guy's career and he was pretty quickly fighting nothing but capital G guys Yeah, very early on. I mean, we said it before, but when his 10th pro fight was against Jake Ellenberger, and then from there on, it was just Tyron Woodley, Nate Marquardt, Neil Magny, you know, and fighting all these tough guys over and over again. 
eventually that's going to take a toll on you. But also it means that if you end up in these close fights where it's just decided by just, you know, one round here or there or just a couple moments in a couple of the rounds, it's it's easy for it to, to go against you if you aren't putting it together exactly perfectly. I mean, that's one of the things that makes it such a hard sport and also why it's a hard way to live if half your money is dependent on winning every time. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Well, I'm looking at a headline here, Chad. I'm going to read it to you. It's from The Mirror over there in the UK. I just want you to emotionally prepare yourself for it. That's why I'm... And this is... I don't know. Am I'm I emotionally heaving prepared? a sigh. Conor McGregor explains plans to make a Guinness World Record attempt. Okay. Is it a Guinness World Record attempt in shit-talking? Conor McGregor wants to break the Guinness World Record for the fastest time to lap Ireland by powerboat <laughs> after purchasing a number of new boats recently. Ugh. The Irishman is currently weighing up the options for his next move as he recovers from a horror leg break last month and has big plans for when he's back in his home country. During a recent Q&A with his followers on social media, the former two-weight UFC world champion said he was planning to break another record in his already historic career. Quote, I plan to set the Guinness world record for fastest time to lap Ireland by powerboat, McGregor told a fan on Twitter today. The boat that holds the record currently was man-built, pretty cool boat, but I'm going to take that record handy. 4,000 BHP powering a full carbon vessel. It's a wrap. Ha ha ha. <sighs> you fucking kidding me? Kidding this is me. what we're doing now? At the same time, though, if I can be real, this is, I feel like this is a good use of the man's time and energy. Okay. All right. I mean, because to, me, to me, it's starting. it's all starting to sound pretty familiar to uh, what we said we were going to do last time. You, you you mean water sports yeah. awareness, water safety awareness? We're going to sail around the world to raise money for water safety awareness. That didn't work out. Now we're going to drive a fast-ass boat around Ireland. I mean, I, I kind of want to know, did he have to look up the record? How did you even get started <laughs> thinking about it? Like, wonder what the record is and if I could beat it. But also... If I had to choose something for Conor McGregor to do, and clearly if you look at what he's up to on Twitter, he needs something to do. He, the man, that's a man who is desperately in need of a hobby. Something. Just get him off the internet. Get him to stop being a, an enemy to himself. And yet he can't really walk around too great because of the horror leg break. The aforementioned horror leg break. So what can you do? You just bought yourself a fancy-ass boat? I don't know, sail it around Ireland a whole bunch of times. See how fast you can do that. It's, it seems like a like a, a project you would give one of your kids to keep them busy, to keep them out of trouble. Yeah. Like, uh, how many times can you hop on one foot? Why don't you do that? Well, I finished trying to like set up this dresser here. Something like that. Fine. The, the headline... <laughs> Conor McGregor said Guinness World Record makes you do a little bit of an are you fucking kidding me? But then it turns into a... Is you kidding me? Okay. All right. See, when you said he was going to try to set a Guinness World Record, my first thought was consecutive uninterrupted hours online. Is that a world <laughs> record? I mean, I think the competition for that one's kind of tough, actually. Ben, can we spare a minute to talk about the nightmare, William Knight? 
who went okay. out there over the weekend and knocked out a guy whose nickname was the Water Buffalo, Fabio Charant, with a kind of a left hook that looked like he barely even throw it. Just kind of stuck his arm out there, knocked this fellow grown man unconscious. You mm-hmm. fucking kidding me? You know how we talk about sometimes this guy looks like they know he knows where they keep the weights? Brother, the weights are at William Knight's house. If, they, <laughs> if anybody needs to find him, that's where they're at. Are you fucking kidding me? He's out here billed as a brawler, knocking motherfuckers cold with a little check hook and then doing a damn backflip inside the cage. William Knight's trying to be one of my guys. And you know what? It's working. It's working. Are you fucking kidding me? Me? You think he has like a thing? He does one of those things where he puts the big chains on the end of his barbells. He's got the chains. He's got the ropes. He's got it all, man. There's there's nothing William Knight doesn't have, to, weight room wise. Yeah, yeah. I bet he has a really good protein powder too. That's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, we discussed this a little bit on Friday, but last week, Kayla Harrison went out there and basically just committed an assault to punch her ticket to another PFL Finals. This time, she will face Taylor Guardado, who is 3-1 as a professional in the, the finals of the PFL 2021 season where there's a million dollars on the line, basically, for the winner. And it feels like kind of even more of a gimme than her last fight against Gina Fabian, who was 4-0, or I think came in, actually, as 4-0 and as a professional uh, before losing to uh, Kayla Harrison. But we talked a little... Oh, actually, I'm sorry, she was 4-1 and coming in, now she's 4-2. and But basically, she's out here, Kayla Harrison, fighting these people who don't seem like either experience or athleticism-wise, they can even really compete with her. She's fighting in a division that feels like it was just created for her and, and is ongoing for her. People are going to give her shit because it seems like she's just absolutely trucking people who cannot be competitive with her, and yet there's a whole bunch of damn money in it, and you don't hear Kayla Harrison talking about how she needs to fight because she's going broke. Yeah. Now... I know we're going to do the thing we do in MMA where we criticize somebody for that. And yet stuff like this makes me wonder, even if somebody who, you know, they might not be a two time Olympic gold medalist, but does stuff like this have like a cumulative effect where a lot of people used to think, Hey, my goal is to win some fights on a local regional circuit and get to the UFC as fast as I can. And that's, that is it. The other organizations, that would be something I would only accept if I were cut from the UFC or if I couldn't get into the UFC. And then you see Kayla Harrison, who is in there clocking these million-dollar checks. She, If the UFC does come calling for her, they'll have to pony up the dough just to even get her in a room to talk about it. And she stands to go over there, if she goes at all, as a, you know, a pretty high-value free agent pickup. Yeah, Stuff like that over time make you think like... It's Kayla Harrison showing us a different way to do this. 
I mean, other fighters have done it before, but is she showing like maybe she has some stuff figured out here that other people have missed? Yeah, I mean, as long as she's not buying any powerboats uh, with which she might try to sail around a large island country, you would have to believe that Kayla Harrison is probably doing pretty well financially. And uh, she, in some ways, has taken the path of least resistance here in the PFL in that that, as you said, she's largely fighting a lot of people who don't seem all of that competitive with her. Although, again, like, again, at the lightweight, the women's lightweight level, I don't know who you would find who would be competitive with Kayla Harrison over the course of, like, a PFL season. Uh, and, of course, again, this being MMA, MMA we're going we're gonna to impose a lot of our own shit on Kayla Harrison, right? We're going to come out here as fans and we're going to say, well, she should fight somebody competitive. She should go to the UFC. She should prove that she's the best in the world. She should drop down to 145. She needs to drop down to 145, we might say. But that's us as fans, right? Like imposing our wants and desires on this person, Kayla Harrison, who as an athlete and an MMA fighter, seems to have a pretty good deal going. And I thought you you said it well on Friday uh, during the power hour, just when you said, like, why would she go anywhere else if she can sit here and continue to beat the Gina Fabians of the world and earn another million dollars? She already earned a, a million dollars back in 2019 when she won the first uh, PFL Women's Lightweight Championship Tournament. And now if she's poised to do it again and we expect her to do it again, and then she will have a couple million dollars in the bank or will have earned a couple million dollars throughout her so far 11 fight MMA career, which is a lot more money than most MMA fighters get to make through that point of their career. So like, yeah, man, I think like selfishly, I want Kayla Harrison to fight some people that would provide a measuring stick so we could find out how good she is. But I understand that that's me talking. And if Kayla Harrison chose to spend the rest of her MMA career over in the PFL, beating up nobody's getting paid a million bucks every three fights. I would understand. Let's just yeah. say that. Well, especially because we're just sitting here talking about how Jared Cannoneers talk about he's broke. Yeah. Right. And we kind of throw up our hands a lot of times of being like, well, that's the system that the UFC has put in place. It seems that way by design. And uh, there's not a whole lot that anybody can do to make them change that. And then we're going to turn around and somebody else who is making good money to for much easier work and be like, mm, she doesn't want to challenge herself or like, you know, this is this is not meaningful enough. Which way do we want it? Because if we're saying like, oh, hey, the, the UFC fighters are being underpaid and that they are not at you know really on the verge of changing that. Then if you look at somebody else who has been like, I have found a different way to go about this and it's working out really well for me. I am taking very little damage. You know, her, Kayla Harrison's opponent landed zero of one significant strikes in this fight. I mean, that is good work if you can get it. Yeah. And if if it, the alternative over there in the UFC doesn't look that great then of course you're going to do this. But, I mean, we know that she's going to do this for at least a while until the UFC wants to sit down and talk about what it'll take to bring Kayla Harrison over and what division she even fight in and all that kind of stuff. But even then, you're going to come in on a much better deal than you would have gotten when the UFC does the same thing they'll do when, you know, when you see somebody like Gable Stevenson uh, win a gold medal or uh, people want to talk about, okay, 
Maybe the he could sign to an MMA promotion. Well, man, you should go do something else first until they really, really have to pay to get you. Like, that's the kind of stuff it feels like we're learning from seeing the careers of not only Kayla Harrison, but people like Michael Chandler and things like that, where like if you just come right in on this entry-level stuff, you there goes your negotiating leverage. Like, yeah. you want to show up with leverage because once you're in the UFC, it's hard to come by. Yeah. And not everyone can do the Kayla Harrison thing, obviously. Not everyone is going to come in with the sort of preloaded interest of a Gable Stevenson. But I wonder what people like Kayla Harrison and I wonder what people like Anthony Pettis and people like Rory McDonald are telling the up and coming fighters in their gyms. I wonder if they're telling them like, yeah, man, you could go to the UFC and you could make 12 and 12 or 20 and 20, whatever it is, and, until you work your way up. Or you could go over to the PFL where the fights certainly aren't any more competitive or any harder, and you have a chance to, to make a lot more money if you can get in this tournament. So in terms of like a cumulative effect or a chilling effect, in, in no way would I ever make the case that Bellator or the PFL or any of these other companies are going to challenge the UFC for supremacy over the MMA market because I just don't think that they are. I think the UFC is too well cemented, ensconced in that position at this point. But like, I don't know, man, if you were Anthony Pettis and you were hanging around in Rufus Sport and there's a bunch of young guys out there looking for career advice, I wonder what you would tell them. I wonder if you would tell them the thing they got going over in PFL, even though things didn't work out that well for me, it ain't too bad over there, man. Yeah, well, I mean, just if you're going to ask somebody in the gym, don't ask George St. Pierre, because as we have already established, he will tell you to quit. That's right. <laughs> just give up now, man. But you know what? He'll do it because he loves you. He's going to yeah. do it out of love and respect. He'll do it because he just can't bring himself to bullshit you that you will never make it and you should give up. I mean, we found this out a long time ago when they asked George St. Pierre what his advice for young fighters was. And his response was basically like, I don't know, try to be more like George St. Pierre, be super athletic, be really good at stuff. That's what I would do. Helps to be really good looking and to always win. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I found that uh, to be handy advice just in life, no matter what your chosen calling might be. Just be super good looking and always win. Hey, let's not act like the CME hasn't established it as one of its truisms about mixed martial arts that it is always better to win a fight than to lose it. If Kayla Harrison stays, let's say she stays in the PFL. I don't know that she will. Like I said on Friday, I think that uh, if she wins another million bucks, maybe maybe she starts to feel a little bit more financially secure. Maybe at that point she starts to think more about competition and about legacy, which are things that are kind of uh, bored into you when you go through this judo slash Olympic system, right? I think competition and honor and legacy are important to those people. I think Kayla Harrison is one of those people, but let's say she just, she says, all right, I'm going to come back. I'll do another one in the PFL. And at that point, you know, maybe I'll be done. Maybe that's, that's good enough for my MMA career. Will you see that as like a missed opportunity or will you have some, uh, regrets or or would that be okay with you? We just talked about how we think that it would be good for Kayla Harrison, the person, if she did that, but Ben Folks, the MMA fan, will you be a little disappointed if that's all that Kayla Harrison does? A little bit. I'll feel like it would have been nice to see her, you know, try something else and, to, and be pushed in that way, but I wouldn't blame her. Just because of the, what we've seen, how, how we've seen this stuff go. I, I wouldn't be able to sit there and be like, you know, she's robbed us of anything that we deserve or like, you know, she didn't know us anything. 
I, I would athletically, I would think it would be a little bit disappointing and probably a little bit disappointing for her as well. Um, but I also, man, the stuff that we have seen in this sport, how could you judge anybody negatively for that? Yeah. And I wonder, man, if you're going to go over there and even have a conversation with the UFC, where does the dollar value even start if you're Kayla Harrison? Because you're going to be like, well, I made a million bucks when I beat Larissa Pacheco. <laughs> so how much are you going to pay me to fight Amanda Nunes, which would be a harder fight with a more difficult weight cut? Yeah, and not just like a little bit of a harder fight. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know. It, you would have to, I think, have one of those conversations where we talk, where, where the UFC wants to talk about how you're partners with us in this event. You know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Had to be one of those kind of talks. Yeah. Because otherwise, it's hard to see it being worth it. I have a gut feeling we're going to see her in the octagon. But again, just the way that the UFC is being so cost conscious right now. <clears throat> John Jones versus Francis Ngannou. Uh, I don't know. We'll have to just wait and see what happens. In any case, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, this Sunday night, August 29th, 2021, from the granddaddy of them all, the Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse out there in Cleveland, Ohio, the hometown kid, Jake Paul, is going to take on Tyron Woodley in what will be Paul's fourth professional boxing match coming in off the heels of that quick and easy TKO victory less than two minutes over Ben Askren, the former wrestling teammate of Tyron Woodley back in April. I think we all think Tyron Woodley shapes up as a more difficult boxing opponent for Jake Paul than Ben Askren was, but I still don't know exactly what to expect when we get to the ring here. Uh, have, have you, has Jake Paul changed your mind? at all in terms of what you think of him, what you think of his boxing career, what you think of him just as a, as an entity in the combat sports world, uh, between when he showed up on the scene and today, have have you, have you changed your mind at all about Jake Paul? You know, I have in the sense that now I am at least conflicted about Jake Paul. Whereas before I just thought, well, whatever is going on here is dumb. And now I've been forced to add some layers to that, that whatever is going on here is dumb, but also maybe has something to tell us. Because for one thing, I don't know how you can look at what's going on there with the whole Jake Paul situation and not see it as a, a piece of a, like a larger change, a larger recent shift in combat sports. Like Jake Paul out here fighting people is different by degree, but not type from, you know, Anderson Silva out here boxing some of these people. So it's, he's taking advantage of, and really in a way like helping to spearhead a change in combat sports that way, bringing this attention by bringing in sort of a new audience and by having at least enough skills in both, you know, 
becoming a personality and being able to fight at least a little bit that he can keep it going. And he's pretty smart when it comes to stuff like target selection. We saw that much with Ben Askren. And then, you know, they had this like moment in the locker room with Tyron Woodley, uh, Ben Askren's teammate. And so then, you know, you pivot to that afterwards, a little bit more dangerous a fight, which you kind of got to do because we only want to see the risk escalate. Like that's how you keep people paying to see this stuff, but also like not such an increased risk that it is, uh, like an undue danger to you as a yeah. fighter. Like it's yeah. winnable still, even though Tyron Woodley definitely has a better chance than Ben Askren did out there on his like replaced knee for a guy who was never a super great striker or even all that fleet of foot. Yeah, it's real easy to be mad at Jake Paul, right? And it was mad to be at, uh, it was easy to be mad at him early on when he first showed up on the scene. And I think by his own admission, he was kind of trolling everybody. Uh, making these statements about uh, MMA fighters and his own abilities and he was fighting on trillers and he's knocking out basketball stars and all this kind of different stuff. But as time has gone on, he continues to say stuff that I think is pretty honest, both about himself and I think he has said stuff that is, is honest and the truth about the business model of mixed martial arts. I don't think he is saying many of those things out of any form of pure altruism. Like, I think he has his own promotional reasons for picking fights with Dana White, saying stuff about how much UFC fighters get paid, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't think it's just because he has a a good heart. But I think now that the guy has been on the scene for a while, I'm forced to look at him and recognize him as like a fairly savvy marketer of himself, at least by today's standards and how things work in 2021 in terms of, uh, you know, making people pay attention to you and and presenting a product that people are going to pay for. And I also think like, even though I don't know that he is ultimately going to turn out to be that great of a fighter, you have no choice, don't you? But to look at him as a larger piece of a puzzle also within the history of combat sports in that, you know, going back essentially to the beginning of professional fighting, there have always been attractions like Jake Paul, and they are attractions uh, that make sense in their time and place. And now in, in the year 2021, I guess, a thing that you can be is a super famous social media YouTube influencer. And so to take that preloaded fame and bring it to combat sports and have this uh, audience that will follow you there and pay to watch you fight is, isn't all that different than some things boxing and wrestling and fighting promoters have been doing since the start. So I don't know. I don't know that I have a great reason right now to be super mad at Jake Paul, other than the fact that he is just annoying. And if that's the bar, I'm going to, uh, ask people to clear. There are a lot of people in combat sports who don't clear that bar, frankly. <laughs> yeah, well, and I feel like as time goes by, the th- one of the things that changes about my perception of him is that I start to think of him as the guy who does this, the guy who does this thing that he's doing. Where, whereas before, when you had to explain to me who Jake Paul is, it was okay. Yeah, he's like a YouTuber or, or you know whatever. He's coming from a world that I don't know anything about, and I that I don't think gives you any sort of credibility in the world of combat sports. And so that was the initial resistance. And then you see him show up, fight a couple times, knock out Ben Askren, look fairly credible in some of these fights, and 
talk a whole bunch of shit about the UFC's pay structure in a way that shows that he actually is at least paying attention somewhat to that world and has, you know, some comments to say about it that are difficult to argue with. And then over time, you start to realize, oh, holy shit, do I know him for this now? Like, I didn't know the other thing that he was doing that was supposed to be why he was famous and how he could show up in this world and instantly get a bunch of attention for it. Now I know him as the guy who is going to fight every few months uh, and knows how to make headlines on, like, MMA websites and combat sports blogs and things like that and forces us to pay attention to him whether we want to or not, one way or another. And I... Over time, I think that he he sort of changes your perception of him in that way, and that that forces me to realize, okay, maybe he's at least – I don't know if I would go so far as to call him a really intelligent man. I don't know enough about him yet, but he's at least smart in that regard. He's savvy in that regard. He looks, He's able to look at this world and see it for what it is and know exactly how and when to push our buttons. And even though in fairness for MMA people, the, the buttons are pretty obvious and right out there. Yeah. You think he's going to beat Tyron Woodley on Sunday? I don't know, Chad. I just yeah. don't know. Will it make you feel any emotions if he does? You know, there is a part of me that definitely wants to see this Jake Paul shit continue because it's kind of fun. <laughs> and I want to see how far it'll go and to see if he'll get in a situation where he, he has to suddenly bite off way more than he can chew, and then if that would be actually turn out to be fun to watch. But there's also a part of me that would be very sad for Tyron Woodley to see him go out there and get beat up by the YouTube dude. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, I agree. And, like, even though I've uh, had an evolution, experienced an evolution in my thinking, I guess, about Jake Paul – were he to get just absolutely cold cocked, knocked out by Tyron Woodley, I have to admit that there is like a mouth breathing, knuckle dragging MMA part of my brain where I would be like, yeah, see, see, this is what happens. This is what happens when you run your mouth. This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass, Donnie. <laughs> You're saying that if you, there's a part of you that wants to see him fuck around and find out. Yeah, I mean, there is. Yeah, I have to admit it. I have to admit it. All right, let's go ahead and do uh, just saying stuff, and then we will move on for this week. Ben, did you see that it turns out that Michael Chandler, he wasn't actually <laughs> just waiting for the COVID vaccine to get approved by the FDA. It turns out that's not the thing he was waiting on. The hell you say? I know. Surprising, right? Shocking, in fact. Uh, he comes out and says, <laughs> "Gotta, you got to hand it to MMA fans who, of course, are going to bring it to Michael Chandler's attention on Twitter today that the FDA <laughs> has fully approved the Pfizer uh, COVID vaccine. Somebody goes at Michael Chandler when you get in the jab, basically. <laughs> Michael Chandler responds, I don't want it, FDA approval or not. Real enough for you, question mark. I have no problem with people getting it. We all have a choice. This is mine. This week, I'm just saying, Ben, if you have a spare moment, just take a spin through the replies on Michael Chandler's tweet <laughs> because he is out here getting absolutely roasted by people on Twitter for being an anti-vax guy. And frankly, I'm here for it. I am here for it. One guy says, moving the goalposts like every other smooth brain science denier. How disappointing. <laughs> Another guy comes on here. Uh, 
He says, this is some Frankie Edgar and Chris Weidman shit. I hate to put politics in MMA, but damn. A lot of people on here are going to just do the MMA fan thing and accuse Michael Chandler of being scared to fight Justin Gaethje, which I don't know that that's true, but a lot of people are putting voice to that. Here's but you a, knew they were going to go that route. You knew it. Ben Goldstein, uh, for God's sakes, Mike, it's just a little poke. You can even close your eyes while it's happening. Uh, just on and on in the in the mentions here of Michael Chandler, just just raking him over the coals. Not very Christian to lie, Mike, says one guy here. Uh, I'm here for it. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Doesn't it seem like he would have taken a lot less shit if that had been his original position? That he just didn't want to get any vaccine? Like, people would have been like, oh, there's another one of these. And then they would have moved on. But to come out first and be like, I'm not doing anything without FDA approval. And everybody went, hmm, okay, that doesn't sound like the position most fighters take on most things. Uh, But, okay, fine. We're going to check back in with you, though. <laughs> like you had to know that was coming that when the FDA inevitably approved this thing, that then people are going to circle back and be like, how about now? And then you would have to admit that they were, that your previous position was entirely bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Just saying, just saying Which Chad, this week, I'm just saying, did you catch maybe my favorite non fighting moment of the UFC broadcasts on Saturday when Mark O. Madsen, he wins a very close decision against Clay Guida. You could tell he was full of, of relief and maybe even a little bit of surprise. I thought that perhaps Clay Guida was about to get himself a surprise decision there. He wins the fight. He celebrates around a little bit. Daniel Cormier comes in there. It's kind of an emotional interview after all the things that Mark Madsen has been through. And right off the bat, the first words out of Mark Madsen's mouth on the microphone appear to be in Danish. Yeah, he's speaking and, in mother tongue out there in response to the uh, the first question from DC. And the look on Daniel Cormier's face. Yeah, it can <laughs> it can most accurately be described as, uh oh. Yes, he. You can tell in that moment he's like, I don't know if he's just given a quick Danish shout out and then we're gonna return to English, but he kind of looks off off camera, like as maybe toward a producer or something to be like. Oh, guys, he's like, do what? we have an interpreter here for this? <laughs> we don't because there is you can see standing there. We all know Mark Madsen speaks English. There's no interpreter there. And he's looking off like, what do you want me to do with this? I was not I was not expecting this moment. I'm just saying in that moment, DC was all of us. Yeah. Because we that that is the exact face we all would have made on live TV in that situation where you think you're going to do an interview with the guy and he reels off some Danish on you and you're like, well, shit. I don't know Danish. Yeah. And frankly, I'm just saying one way or another, we've all been there, right? We've all made that face at some point when things, uh, things didn't go how they were supposed to go at our jobs. So Daniel Cormier just out here continuing to be entirely relatable. Just saying. All right. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Thanks everybody for joining us. If you want to head over to patreon.com and check out the stuff that's going on over there all week long, Wednesday, live chat, Thursday, movie club, Friday, power hour, rolling into another weekend uh, where the UFC is going to hit us with Edson Barbosa versus Giga Chica days. I keep saying that wrong. That's not how you say that, right? Yeah. You know what? Let's listen real close this weekend. Yep, I'm going to pay attention to my guy John Anik this weekend. Learn me up on how to do this that. Is, this is the weekend we get it. Yep, that's. I mean, that, this is a legitimately fun featherweight fight. 
as your main yep. event here on this card. Uh, beyond that, you get into some pretty classic hashtag just some fights stuff, although there are a couple of known names here. But uh, most of the attention here going to be around the main event, so hopefully that comes off as scheduled. Thanks, everybody, for listening this week. As for now, we are done. We are through. We are out. What was the when was the last time you think you made that Daniel Cormier face? Um, I know it was when I tried to interview Cyril Gaon over uh, like a phone. I had a whole thing I was going to do with this phone interview, and then when I asked the first question, uh, he gave a very short, stilted answer in English that suggested that he would not even accept or maybe even understand the premise of the question. Well, there goes my whole plan. It's not going to work. It's just not going to work here. No, that's, that's understandable. I think I've, I've made that face in an interview or two over, over yeah. the years.